This morning to welcome back uh, Professor John Thompson, Dr. John Thompson. He is a professor at ORU and also the Global Leadership and President of Global Equip. So we're looking forward to hearing what the Lord has on his heart. So please welcome John Thompson. Good morning, everyone. It is great to be back with you all. Pastor Chris texted me on Monday and said, could you come and speak? And so what a great honor it is to be back here after a couple of years to be with you all. Um, I, yes, I lead an organization called Global Equip. We started in 2009 training pastors and ministry leaders in different uh, parts of the world in developing nations where um, God is doing amazing things. But many pastors never have the opportunity to go to Bible school and get training. And so we go and we help equip them for the work that God has put them in. And you all have been a part of that. Um, I think it was 2015 when Scott and Pastor Chris went um, to uh, Nepal, and then from there went down to South Africa and met me in South Africa because I had to come back to ORU and teach. And so they finished out our training there. Um, and then the next year, I believe it was, Chad Bland went uh, to Nepal you guys have been sending your people to invest in a place like Nepal. Nepal is an amazing place. The gospel did not come into Nepal. Um, it was completely closed before the 1950s. Then slowly when it began to open up, people went in, and it's been in the last 20 years that the gospels begin to grow. Officially, there are less than 1% are Christian, but unofficially, um, they estimate probably there's a, now about 10% of the Nepali people, 30 million people living in Nepal who have become followers of Jesus. It's a place of persecution. It's difficult there. When I was last there in 2018, while we were there, they had just passed an anti, uh, uh, sort of an anti-conversion law, um, and it's really one of the most strict laws in the world, and it basically says if you disturb someone's religion, you're subject to five years in prison and a 50,000 ruple fine. To which our translator said, doesn't matter. If they throw me in prison, I'll just witness in prison. This is the boldness of the Nepalis. I met uh, Pastor Dan Pokerell, and it's his picture up there. He leads the organization that we work with, Global Mission Nepal. I met him in 2012, um, and he introduced me to his friend who was pastoring in Nepal. We went and started training pastors. Then in 2014, Dan started his own church planting organization, Global Mission Nepal, with the goal that in 10 years they would plant 100 churches. Today, seven years in, he's planted 90 churches. God's doing amazing things. Just this year, in the middle of COVID, in the spring... During a three-month period, they led 600 Hindus to Christ and baptized 300. One church planter on Easter Sunday baptized 99 new believers. It's amazing what God is doing there. I was supposed to go with uh, Dan this summer in June to Nepal, um, but right before we were about to uh, make plans and go, um, the wave that hit India... India shares a border with Nepal, also hit Nepal. And so we were not able to go. 
Um, instead, I went to Charlotte, where Dan lives and runs his ministry from, and spent a weekend with him. We had a great time of sharing stories and hearing about all that God is doing in Nepal, um, and uh, really strategizing about this next, these next steps for how do we train and equip um, these growing number of ministry leaders that he has across Nepal in seven different provinces. There was a moment in that conversation that leapt out of the conversation to me. He was sharing with me how when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, he said, immediately we teach them to do these seven things. And let's put that up there. He said, we teach them immediately, as soon as they say yes to Jesus, to read their Bible, to pray, to be a part of a church, to give, to become like Jesus, to serve, and to share Christ with others. And then he said this, if you don't teach new believers to do that right away, you nominalize new believers. Everything else in life will distract them. I was like, wow. When you think about discipleship, you think about following Jesus, if you don't get new believers engaged right away in being disciples, in truly putting Jesus at the center of their lives, then they will just become nominal believers. And unfortunately, I see too many of, them, of those around. People who are Christian in name, maybe they go to church occasionally, but they're not really following Jesus. Uh, pastor Chris, we love Pastor Chris. What an amazing pastor you have. Uh, he, he asked me to speak on intentional discipleship this morning. Um, and I'm actually, you know, uh, I feel like I'm going to be speaking to the choir. I have Pastor Chris come into my discipleship in small groups class for several uh, class periods to share what you all are doing here at Abiding Harvest in discipleship and small groups and people doing life together and really um, being disciples. So this morning, um, I hope that what I say encourages you and helps you to think a little bit more about being a disciple and what that looks like. This word disciple um, is used 273 times in the New Testament. All of those occurrences happen from Matthew to Acts. 273 times um, believers are referred to as disciples because there was a whole system in the Jewish world of Jesus' day and Paul's day where rabbis, these spiritual teachers of truth, would gather disciples. They would travel around, and those disciples were their students. And to be a disciple was not just to learn what the teacher, the rabbi, knows, but it is to become who the rabbi is. It's paying attention to every detail of their life. They eat with them, they sleep with them, they're, they're walking with them, traveling with them, and they're observing how their master lives life. And they want to become like their master. This is the idea behind the use of the word disciple. That we're not just trying to learn the right things, but we want to become like Jesus. 
who want to follow him well. So this morning, um, I'm going to draw from a passage where this word disciple is used. It's one of the last occurrences in the New Testament in Acts 21, uh, verses 3 through 6. And here we read, so let me give context. Paul, um, in Acts 14 to 20, we have this description of Paul's, um, and it might begin in chapter 13, his three missionary journeys. So he is traveling across the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire at the time, and he's going into um, major cities, and he's sharing the good news of Jesus. And as people come to faith in Christ, then he gathers them into communities, and he appoints leaders, and he establishes churches. So Paul did three of these trips, but it's not just Paul, it was a team. And he would gather people out of these cities that would travel with him, like Silas and Timothy and these other people that are listed in the New Testament. And they went to these different cities. And on the way back home, his last missionary journey, he's going back to Palestine and he's going to Jerusalem. And so we have here in chapter 21 a little description of his trip back to um, Jerusalem. And we'll skip verses 1 to 3 as he's talking about the different stops they made in the Mediterranean as they finally get back to Syria. So we pick it up in chapter, verse 3, sorry. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. That would be modern-day Lebanon, all right? Um, after looking, I'm sorry, uh, landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. So here's this, this short little scene of seven days. We just get a brief summary of Paul's interaction in Tyre. Um, and we first see that he, he gets there, he's got this seven-day window, and he and his team look up the disciples. He doesn't, Luke does not, because Luke's the writer of Acts, Luke does not say we looked for the believers. He doesn't say we looked for the Christians. He says we looked for the disciples. And they found them. And they spent seven days with them. And I imagine that they lived in their homes they opened their doors, and, and the team was living in the homes, staying with these disciples, these passionate followers of Jesus, who are unnamed. This isn't a group of, of pastors, apostles. These are just disciples of Jesus who are opening their homes, welcoming this apostolic team, and I'm sure Paul and his team are teaching them the scriptures and truths and, and this, this rich experience of seven days. And then when it's done, they all, with their families, escort them out of the city. And then you see this wonderful picture of them kneeling in the sand, praying together and bidding farewell. So I see three 
sort of characteristics of a disciple in this text. And I want to just sort of unpack these a little bit for you this morning. The first is, these disciples were marked by hospitality. Opening their homes to the apostles. Welcoming uh, them in. And I think disciples are the most hospitable people on the face of the earth. Or they should be. This uh, July 24th was a Saturday a few weeks ago. And Sandy, my beautiful wife Sandy, is back there on the fourth row. Uh, she and I were in, in France, in La Boule. Um, beautiful setting. It's on the coast. We were there. Um, I was there to officiate a wedding for Luke. Luke is a guy who I met here in Tulsa a few years ago playing tennis. And we were um, playing against each other. And, and, and we afterwards talked, and, and he was sharing about his life. He, his mom was from France. His dad was Italian and American. Um, his dad died when he was young. Um, and so they, he ended up here in Tulsa, growing up in Tulsa, um, but then went away for college and business. Um, and uh, he got married in the, that whole mix, but he had been divorced for 15 years. Um, and seven years ago, he came back to Tulsa to help his mom, who was getting older. And uh, he shared with us how these seven years um, had been pretty lonely for him in Tulsa. His mom had some friends, but people really didn't invite him into their home. And here he was in our city, which I think is a pretty friendly city, don't you? And yet, he was feeling alone in our city. Well, he told us that this May. He didn't tell me that when we were playing tennis. Um, but, you know, we invited him and his mom to our house a couple times. And then they invited us to their house. And um, so we connected over the last few years. Um, then he met a, a, a young a, a lady, uh, not so young now, but a lady in La Bole two years ago, and this last year he got engaged. So he moved back to La Bull this spring. He sold his house here, and he was finishing up his business. He came back to Tulsa to wrap everything up, and we just said, hey, come and stay with us for two weeks while you're here. So he did. He stayed with us for two weeks, and, and <laughs> there was a funny moment where my wife and I went to Dallas while he was here in our house for two weeks, and our son, our youngest son, Solomon, who's 22, still lives at home. Anyone have some kids still living at home that are in their 20s? Well, we do. Um, and he said to us, Mom, Dad, do you really know this guy? <laughs> well, we didn't really know him that well, a little bit here and there. And, and anyway, so uh, it was a funny moment. At the end of our two weeks, we prayed together in our living room, Sandy and I and Luke, and he started to cry. And he talked about how he's going to miss us so much. And when I got to the wedding, um, to officiate the wedding, there were only 40 people at the wedding, and Sandy and I were on the invite list. And one of the people there was like, oh, you're his best friend, aren't you? You know, a little hospitality goes a long way. Opening our homes and opening our hearts to people. 
People are hungry for friendship. They're hungry for us to open our lives to them. And the Lord may be putting people, bringing them just casually across your path. What will you do to make space for them? To welcome them in? To be a part of your life? To bring them into your home? We don't like to do that too much in America because our homes are our castles. You know, we have the, the garage door opener and we hit the button and, you know, the bridge over the moat comes down, we drive into our private castle, and we hit the button again, and the bridge goes up, right? And now we're in our little safe, secure spot. And, but I think God doesn't want it to be just for you. He wants it to be for you and others. And I think that's the mark of a disciple. We also see here, um, oh, Hebrews 13.2. You're familiar with this passage of Scripture, right? Um, it says, do not neglect hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. There's a real blessing in opening your life up to those you don't know very well. The second mark I see here um, is that these disciples were tuned into and listening to the Holy Spirit. Remember, these are not pastors, these are not apostles, these are just disciples. But we read in the text here, um, it says, we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. They were tuned in to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And they were sharing what God was saying to them with Paul. Now we expect it to go the opposite direction. Paul is sharing God's truth with them, but here they are, just ordinary disciples, hearing the voice of God and really challenging Paul, be careful, there's trouble waiting for you in Jerusalem. And they know this because the voice of the Spirit is speaking to them. Last year, I was with Dr. Stavros Ignatiu. He's our ministry partner in Greece, um, works with refugees, has a phenomenal ministry uh, with refugees. Uh, we're planning this coming year to go and actually train refugee leaders. These are these are Muslim background believers who have come to faith in Christ and they're now ministering to their own people. It's beautiful. He said to me, you need to make sure when you train leaders, you teach about the Holy Spirit. One of the things he sees missing with refugees who've become believers is we don't teach them about the Holy Spirit. Now the reality is they've encountered the Holy Spirit. Most of them, or many of them, on their journey um, fleeing war in Syria and other places, on their way, they might have had dreams or visions of Jesus. They have miraculous encounters with God. There are stories that would, that would just amaze you to hear how God is speaking to these refugees even before they come to faith in Jesus. But when they come to faith in Jesus, they said, then we don't talk about the Holy Spirit. We need to. So, uh, this summer, I was working on new material for our training, and I was working on a lecture on the Holy Spirit. And as I was doing that, I came across one passage of Scripture and one idea that I have been chewing on ever since. And it's in John chapter 16, verses 7, and then verses 13 and 14. And uh, we can put them up there on the screen if we have them. 
back up a little bit. There. Uh, here's what Jesus said to the first disciples. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, let's stop there. First of all, that's an amazing statement. It's actually better that Jesus left us. That's not how I think. I wish Jesus was here with us. If we're going to follow him well, I just think it'd be so much better if he was right here with us. But the problem with that is he's then limited in one spot, right? So if you wanted to follow Jesus, you're going to have to move from Tulsa to Palestine, right? So Jesus said, it's much better if I go away. I'll send you another helper. Jesus was a helper. He'll send another helper, paraclete, um, a comforter. It's translated different ways, all right? Who will be with you and who will be in you. Jesus was with the disciples. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus in the disciples. That's why it's so much better, right? So when you become a follower of Jesus, His Spirit is not just with you. His Spirit comes to live in you. We are carriers of the presence of God. Every one of us is disciples. It's amazing. And then Jesus goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Okay, so here's the deal. God has a lot of things to tell you and me. And you can't handle them all right now in this moment. In fact, we can only really deal with one thing at a time. But we have the spirit in us that if we are tuned in and listening, then we get to have a lifetime of God speaking to us and teaching us by His presence that lives in us. But if we're just Christian in name, we're just a believer that's all about ideas and not about relationship, then we won't be listening. Disciples listen. Disciples get quiet and listen and tune in. What is God saying to you today? What does he want to work on? What does he want to speak to you? What does he want to say through you to someone else? This is the active presence of God in the discipleship community. That's amazing. We need the work of the Spirit desperately in our lives. Because discipleship, one big part of discipleship is, as one theologian said, discipleship is rooted in the image of God. God's desire is to reform His image in you. He made us in His image. That image is broken through the fall and through sin and our own brokenness. But he wants to, throughout our lifetime, restore his image in us so that we look more and more like him. This week, uh, I moved my son back from Dallas, my oldest son, um, to Tulsa. And we were listening to a podcast on the way back. And it was a podcast where they were interviewing the creator of 
the TV show The Good Place. Anyone seen The Good Place? Okay, so one of you, yeah, I, I'm not recommending it necessarily, but it's about um, this, uh, these people who end up in heaven and then their whole stories about all of that. Um, but the, the creator was being interviewed on the podcast along with a consultant. The creator of the show had reached out to a moral philosophy professor at UCLA. And she was consulting with them on moral philosophy that helped inform the show. And so they had both the creator and the professor on the podcast, and this professor of moral philosophy at one moment uh, in the interview said this. She said, you can't try to be good. I thought, well, let me think about that. Aren't we all trying to be good? She says, it's very difficult. And we have, you know, all these mixed motives and all this. It's, it's just really hard to try to be good. You're either good or you're not. In fact, at another point in the interview, she said, uh, I know I'm not good. That's just a fact. It's a boring fact. Why dwell on it? Instead, let's just work on fighting injustice in the world and helping others. I thought, well, that's probably a pretty good idea. But I think when we look at Scripture and we think about discipleship and about becoming conformed into the image of Christ, what we discover is you can't do it through self-help. We need divine help. So there's this wonderful partnership with God that when we're tuned into the Holy Spirit and we're listening and we're obeying, then He's slowly transforming us. And without that help, uh, we're, in, we're in desperate straits. in uh, 2012, maybe? I don't know. A few years ago, a friend of mine bought a house down on 19th Street. And it was on the historic registry of houses. You know, the problem with an old house is you're always fixing it. So he decided, you know what? We are going to just do it all at once. Don't prolong this thing. So I went to visit him, and when I walked in the house, there were crews like in every part of the house, hammering, doing work, all that kind of stuff. I came back a month later, and it was quiet, and I walked up to the door, and I was like, wow, this is beautiful. Just the door is beautiful on this house. And so he began to share with me the story of the door. That's the new door on the house. It's not a new door. It's the old door. They wanted to replace it. It would have cost four or $5,000, and he said, no, let's restore the door. So they took the door off its hinges. They took it into the shop and they began to put chemical peel on it, and they did it again and again and again, and they stripped off 15 layers of paint down to the original wood, and, and then the grain just kind of came out. But the problem, he said, is if we scrape it, we'll ruin it. That's what we do when we do self-help. With our own might, we try to scrape it. But if we'll yield ourselves to the chemical of the Spirit, right, then He begins to lift out these layers of junk and grime that are in our lives, and He begins to restore our lives to our, the intended beauty, and then the community of disciples who are like a restored door become 
this beautiful entrance for others into the kingdom. Not only that, but up above the doors on both sides, um, there was this concrete. It was all messy. He didn't know what it was. Layers of paint. And so he had them do the same thing on the concrete. And as they began to take the paint off, they discovered that what was this messy mess up there were actually carved lions. And you can see the picture here of the lions above. So this is a great picture of tuning into the Holy Spirit, letting him daily work on our lives so that we can restore the door and reveal the lions in our life. The last thing I see in this passage is that these disciples, if I can find my notes, do life together. It's a beautiful picture of of their whole families going with Paul and his whole team out of the city and then coming to the beach where the ship is and kneeling together and praying together and then bidding farewell. We oftentimes approach our spirituality with our American individualism. So discipleship is all about me and my personal pursuit of God. But it's not just that. It's a both and. It's me and us. The New Testament's much more communal. It's much more about we than I. I was asked one time in an interview, how much do you pray? And I started telling them my, about my personal prayer life. And they said, wait a minute, how much do you pray with other people? Because when you look at the book of Acts, we see them gathering together to pray. It's a both and. So discipleship is one in which we pursue God personally and we pursue God together. And when we do, there's something powerful that happens within us. And so these are the three thoughts I want to leave with you. A mark of a disciple. Hospitality. Tuned in and listening to the Holy Spirit. And doing life together with other disciples. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for our time here. This community of disciples that's gathered here together, I pray for fresh opportunities to show hospitality to neighbors, to friends, to people that come across their lives. I pray, God, that we would get better at listening every day, hearing the voice of your Spirit and obeying you. And Lord, thank you for these opportunities together to be disciples, to grow from one another, and to experience you in the community of faith. Bless every person here. May we continue to draw closer to you and become more like you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you.